Thank you, Emma. Uh, if you do have a Bible with you or on a device, could I uh, invite you to turn to Nehemiah 13? Uh, I'm pretty sure, and, and this is something we've said before, but I'm pretty certain that every single person sitting here this morning knows someone, and you might even be that person, but we all know someone who was once passionately committed to God. They were on fire, they were sold out, and yet today they're in a very different place. They are indifferent, or they're apathetic, or they're lukewarm, or or they're cold, distant, and disconnected, and, and it's heartbreaking. And it's scary how quickly it can happen. Spiritual temperature drops, and you begin, or you watch someone else begin to drift. But why does it happen? How does it happen? There's usually a number of reasons, a number of factors, and and we're going to think about a few of those in a moment. But, But let me start with a statement and then a piece of advice from the London Underground, which most of you have heard many times before. But but here's the statement to start. A healthy spiritual life today does not guarantee a healthy spiritual life tomorrow. And then here's the statement from the London Underground. Mind the gap. This is a Probably, although not definitely, our last look at the book and the story of Nehemiah. But three weeks ago, we left the people of God in a really good place. At the end of chapter 10. They were spiritually renewed. They were revived. They were committed. They were hungry for God's word. They had confessed their sin. They'd made a commitment. They'd made a new commitment. They'd actually made a written commitment. And they'd committed themselves to four things. Now, I know it's three weeks ago, right? But can anyone remember any of the four things that they committed to? Holiness was one, yep. Word of God, yep. Obedience to the Word of God to giving, to generosity, and then the fourth area, Sabbath, rest. There they are. You see, these people at the end of chapter 10 were in a good place. You could even say that they were on fire. And if you read the closing section of of chapter 12, and those of you who've got a Bible or on a device, you can flick back. But what you do is you find them at the end of chapter 12 engaged in enthusiastic worship, engaged in sacrificial giving, engaged in obedient living. It says at the end of chapter 12 that the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. And if only... The book finished there. Almost with that, and they all lived happily ever after. But it doesn't. There's chapter 13. 
unlucky for some. And tragically, the last chapter of Nehemiah provides clear evidence that a healthy spirituality today does not guarantee a healthy spirituality or spiritual life tomorrow. Plus, it reminds us how easy it is for the gap between what we believe and how we behave to just keep widening. After what we read three weeks ago, for those who were here in chapter 10, after what you read at the end of chapter 12, chapter 13 almost beggars belief. It seems that virtually everything's gone, technical term, belly up. The people of God's behavior in certain areas totally contradicts their beliefs, or certainly what they once believed. And I want to suggest this morning that we, we need to pay close attention to this. As individuals, and as a church family, we need to pay close attention to this because it illustrates how you can go from passionately committed to lukewarm in a reasonably short space of time. You can go from being close to God to feeling miles away from God. You can go from worship to wandering, from sold out to dropped out, from discipleship to drift. And so some of us may need to hear Nehemiah, this outstanding, this gifted, this discerning leader, scream at the top of his lungs, mind the gap because this is what he appears to do in the final chapter of his memoirs. Let me kind of bring you up to speed with developments. Nehemiah has spent 12 years in Jerusalem, planning, overseeing the rebuilding of broken walls, broken people, bringing people together, guiding them through a period of spiritual renewal and revival. But after 12 years, he goes back to the king, King Artaxerxes, and he promised to do that. He had asked for a career break. Granted, it was a long career break. But after 12 years, he goes back to serve as cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is now about 70 years old. But after a while, not entirely sure how long, it's not clear, could have been several years, but after a while, Nehemiah seeks permission to make a return visit to Jerusalem to see how things are, to see how people are getting on. The king agrees to him returning. But what Nehemiah discovers breaks his heart rips his heart out. And so let's stand together for the public reading of God's disappointing word. Let's stand. Nehemiah 13, starting at verse 1, going to skip out some of it. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people and there it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Verse 4. 
Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king some time later. I asked his permission and I came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly distressed. And I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the musicians who were responsible for the service had gone back to work in their own fields. So I rebuked the officials, and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Verse 15, in those days I saw people of Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles and said to them, why is this wicked thing you're doing? What is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on our city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? See, if you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Amnon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. Harsh. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but he, even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now 
that you too are doing these terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. Last line of the chapter. Remember me, O my God, for good. Grab a seat. After all the renewed commitment and written commitment about obedience and the importance of Sabbath and giving and godliness, Nehemiah becomes acutely aware of this huge gap that's appeared between what the people said they believed, what they committed themselves to, and yet how they were actually living. There were contradictions. There were inconsistencies all over the place, and it was devastating for Nehemiah. And so this book ends on a real downer. If only it had finished a chapter earlier. But what I love about Scripture, and this is something I've said on numerous occasions, but what I love about Scripture is its honesty. Do you know, it doesn't sidestep or edit out the low points. It doesn't airbrush the big characters. It doesn't ignore the fact that God's people blow it time and time again. And so God's word includes the fact that Abraham, the founding father of God's chosen people, lied through his teeth in an attempt to deceive the king by telling him that his wife was actually his sister. It includes the fact that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, cheated his brother and stole his birthright. It includes the fact that Moses, God's freedom fighter, lost his temper, murdered someone, buried them in order to cover them up and cover up what he had done. It includes the fact that David, a man after God's own heart, sleeps with his neighbor, commits adultery, and then organizes a form of contract killing. It includes the fact that Peter, the rock upon which Christ will build his church, lied through his teeth. No idea who that guy is. There is, as, as Raymond Brown comments, an obvious realism about Scripture. And so Nehemiah 13 isn't cut, isn't lost, isn't dropped off the end. And I'm glad it isn't. Because amongst other things, it acts as a graphic reminder that God's people do get it wrong and that even the most spiritual communities can find the gap between belief and behavior widen as they face the pressures of living and worshiping in a contemporary world and environment that has little or no time for God or godliness. And as individuals and as a local church, we find ourselves in an increasing secularized, pluralistic, materialistic, hedonistic, or permissive society and the temptation to mix things up and to mess up and to lose our focus, that temptation is relentless. To remain distinctive and true to God and to his word requires total commitment, constant attention, otherwise drift a drop in spiritual temperature, and a widening, glaring gap between belief and behavior, those things are very real possibilities unless we stay focused and committed. 
And sadly, in Nehemiah's day, there were casualties. And sadly, in our day, in our families, in our friendship groups, in our church, there are casualties. And therefore, engaging with this story and learning lessons is critical. And so what I want to do is I want to look at four things that derail these people. Four reasons why this gap between what they believed or what they said they believed and how they behaved. Four reasons why that gap just kept widening. Four challenges, four pitfalls that they faced and we still face. And as we hold up God's word as a lamp and as a scalpel, can I invite myself and can I invite you to stand honestly and openly before God's word and allow it to shine into our hearts and get in under our skin. And so in a moment's silence, I'm going to invite you to ask God to shine the light of his word into the dark recess, the every recess of your heart and mine. And allow God's word to kind of cut us open if necessary and expose what's really going on. The first thing that Nehemiah identified and and the first reason for the gap was compromise. Those of you who have been following this series will remember Tobiah, Nehemiah's arch enemy from the very beginning. He hasn't been around lately. We, We haven't heard from Tobiah in a number of weeks as we have looked at this series. But here, in the final chapter of the story, he reappears. He raises his ugly head again. And even before we consider his involvement, it's probably worth making the point that the enemy of our souls rarely, if ever, goes away. He may leave us alone for a while, and he does. But you can be sure, and some of us might be experiencing this right now, you can be sure he'll be back prowling, masquerading, lying, trying to trip you up, trying to create gaps in your life. Tobiah is back. But did you notice where he was? He's in the house of God. Tobiah has been given a room or a suite of rooms to store his stuff. And the person who's arranged this deal, Eliashib, the high priest. Do you know, if this wasn't so tragic, it would be amusing. In verse one, we read that no Ammonite was allowed to enter the assembly of God. And yet here in a shocking example of compromise, the high priest who surely should have known better has given Tobiah, the Ammonite, his own converted storage facility in the temple. What? is going on. 
the enemy's got more than a foothold. I read one commentator this week who, based on this bizarre arrangement, made the point that even to this day, Satan, our arch enemy, doesn't always fight churches. Sometimes he simply joins them. Tobiah is in. So what does Nehemiah do? How does Nehemiah respond? Well, he he doesn't hold back. He doesn't mince his words. He calls it as it is. He says, do you know something? This is an evil thing. Verse seven, this is an evil thing. And then in Jesus-like fashion, he clears the temple. In fact, he does three things. He clears, he cleanses, he replaces. According to verses eight and nine, Nehemiah dumps Tobiah's stuff. He purifies the room and then he puts back into those rooms what was supposed to be there. You can probably sense where I'm going with this. Scripture makes it really clear that God's temple today is not a building in Jerusalem. Where is God's temple today? Where? Here. Here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are, you are God's temple. Three chapters later, he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask you and myself an obvious and a searching question out of this. What are you giving room to that compromises your faith? What are you giving room to? What have you let in? What are you entertaining? A relationship? A habit? A negative attitude? An interest? A critical spirit? Is there something in your life and mine that sends out all kinds of confusing signals and creates a gap between what we say we believe and yet how we behave. Is there an area of your life and mine that needs to be cleared, cleansed, replaced? Do we need to follow Nehemiah's example and call it as it is this morning and deal with it? And just to make or to take this kind of uncomfortably further, do we need a Nehemiah in our lives to call it as it is and to to challenge us? How would I cope if someone did that this morning? How would you cope? Compromise was threatening to derail the people of God in Nehemiah's day, and it's still a clear and present danger. The second reason for the gap and the dramatic drop in spiritual temperature was selfishness. Back in chapter 10, the people of God had vowed to give a tenth of everything the land produced to the Levites. And they also said, you know, we're not going to neglect the house of God. We're not going to withhold our financial resources from the temple. Here in chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, Nehemiah discovers that the people had become selfish. They were holding back from giving to God, from God's work, from God's worship. They hadn't kept their word. Their behavior was inconsistent with their words and their promises. They were clinging on to their money and onto their possessions for themselves. 
You see, a selfish attitude towards money and resources will wreak havoc in your spiritual life. As one commentator writes, our giving is one of the most accurate indicators of spiritual commitment. It's strong. And I know it's unpopular to talk about money in church. Although just as a heads up, our next series on Sunday mornings from the 19th of February is called Money Talks. But the reality is how we handle money is a major discipleship issue. It's one of the reasons why Jesus spoke about it so much. Jesus said more about money than he did about any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. God's word teaches three things about giving. Should be generous, should be sacrificial, and it should be done cheerfully. Giving back to God what is ultimately his in the first place. And the people of God in Nehemiah's day, they, they weren't doing that. They'd promised to do it, they said they would do it, they'd committed themselves to do it, but they just weren't doing it. And so what does Nehemiah do here? Well, he reprimands the leaders and he re-instructs the people. You see, if you want to mind the gap, if you want to guard against spiritual complacency and drift, I strongly recommend you consider your giving. And the third thing that was threatening to completely derail the people of God after compromise, after selfishness, was a misuse or an abuse of Sabbath. You see, Sabbath was and is a gift from God. And back in chapter 10, the people had committed themselves to not using it just like any other day. But on Nehemiah's revisit, he finds the people are treating the Sabbath exactly like any other day. They're working just as hard. They're trading, they're buying, they're selling. And it's pretty clear that God's gift was just been taken for granted or completely ignored. And I know there's so much we could say on this, but for us, Sabbath remains an important biblical principle that we need to accept, that we need to guard, that we need to protect. Now, we've looked at this before as a church, as part of our Holy Habit series, as part of our series on needing to slow down. But through observing Sabbath, we have the opportunity to emphasize four things, the centrality of worship, the importance of witness, the necessity of rest, and the priority of love. You see, time is a gift from God, and how we use time reflects our priorities. Sabbath is a gift. It's been given for our benefit, but when we misuse it, when we abuse it, the impact on our hearts and on our wholeness is negative every time. And so Nehemiah challenged the people of God directly. In fact, you could almost say he threatened the people of God. Verse 21 says, if you do this again, I will arrest you. If you have an English or a revised standard version of the Bible, it says, if you do this again, I will lay hands on you. In the street Bible, if you mess up again, I'll slap your head. That's not actually what it says. <laughs> so Sabbath observing Sabbath, Sabbath rest, the centrality of worship. 
the importance of witness, what it communicates, and the priority of love. And then the fourth and final reason for the gap was blatant disobedience. Again, despite the commitment in chapter 10 to, listen, we're not only going to hear what God's word says. This is what the people committed. We're not only going to hear what God's word says, we're going to do it. But they'd chosen to disregard that. And the specific issue was marriage. And they knew that God had said, or what God had said about marrying those who didn't share their faith, but they'd, they'd gone ahead and done it anyway. And so Nehemiah has to remind them about the mess that Solomon made in this area. One of the wisest men who ever lived, and a man who God loved, and please don't misunderstand me, don't mishear me this morning. This. God loved Solomon. But Nehemiah has to remind the people of the mess that Solomon made in this area of his life and the consequences of his decisions. And I don't want to specifically focus on that one issue, but as I did three weeks ago, I want us to recognize that hearing God's word and then ignoring it and doing our own thing will have a significantly negative effect and impact on our life with God. Blatant disobedience simply creates gaps. It dulls our edge, reduces the temperature. It causes drift. And so is there an issue in, in my life? Is there an issue in your life where you're doing your own thing as opposed to God's thing? Again, the way Nehemiah deals with this leaves a bit to be desired. According to verse 25, he rebukes them. He calls down curses on them. He beats some of the men, and he pulls out their hair. I don't entirely know where to go with that, apart from the fact that it shows, one, Nehemiah is not perfect. Something we said right at the very beginning, and they say, Nehemiah is an ordinary guy. He's not perfect. Plus, it shows how seriously rattled and disturbed and upset he was by the choices that the people of God were making. This was godly discipline, if you like, taken to a whole other level. But sometimes strong words from godly people are exactly what we need to hear. And so as I said at the start of this, and I'm nearly done, Nehemiah chapter 13 is an unfortunate and disappointing end to the book and end of this series. But it's a chapter that acts as a very real warning against spiritual carelessness because remember, a healthy spiritual life today does not guarantee a healthy spiritual life tomorrow. Your greatest test of faith is always the next one. And so please... Mind the gap. Tackle compromise. Clear, cleanse, and replace if necessary. Beware of selfishness. Give generously. Give sacrificially. Don't misuse or abuse Sabbath. Embrace it as a gift. And deal with disobedience. Don't just listen to God's word. Got to do what it says. 
And that's us done. And that's me done. And maybe the band could come back up, but just as they're doing that, can I just say something about the last line of this book? Here's how Nehemiah chooses to close his memoirs. Here's his final request. Remember me, O my God, for good. I've said Nehemiah was an ordinary man. He was an ordinary man, but he was an ordinary man who just wanted to do good. He wanted to live his life for God. He wanted to help build and restore broken people, broken walls. He wanted to make a difference. And as he gets to the end of his life, or nears the end of his life, he hopes that whenever God thinks of him, he'll think positively. That he'll be pleased with him. In a sense, it's that, that whole idea that when he, when he meets him face to face, he's going to say, you know, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's not a bad request for any of us to make at whatever stage of life we're at. Remember me, oh my God, for good. But you see, if that's going to be the case, we need to mind the gap. We're going to close our service by singing King of Kings, Majesty. And in the next line, God of heaven living in me, you are a temple. Please, maybe if you hear nothing else this morning, you're a temple of God this morning. God of heaven living in me. And then the chorus says, I lay my all before you now. And as we sing this last song, I invite you, as you've allowed God's word to shine and to get onto your skin, I invite you to respond however you feel is appropriate. But let us not be just simply hearers of God's word. Let's be doers of it. King of kings, majesty, God of heaven living in me.